Our New Testament reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 1 and 2. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His Word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning, if you're new, we're continuing a series on our liturgy. We're going through each of the components of our liturgy and inspecting them and uh, breaking them down and figuring out why do we do this and why do we do it in this way? Why do we do it every week and why do we do it in this order? And if you've been paying attention so far in the liturgy, you've noticed that the themes have been about confession and forgiveness. And that's what we're looking at this morning, is this element of confession that we did early in our liturgy, but really inhabits all of the parts of our liturgy. And we'll continue to do that as we pray, as we come to the table, and as we're sent out. But let me pray for us first as we get started, as we talk about walking in the light, confession and repentance. Father, this morning we are here from so many different places. So many spiritual places. Some of us are coming from places of great joy, of great accomplishment, of great achievement. Others of us are crying to you, as we did in this uh, the song earlier, from the depths. Father, some of us are stuck. We're stuck in a a pattern of self-reproach, of sin, of depression, of addiction. We're stuck in the darkness. And we feel that there's no way out. And it's taken all that we could do this morning to get out of bed and and come here this morning. Some of us are hoping that you're real. Some of us are hoping you're not. Some of us want to find you, and some of us are afraid of what that might look like. Whatever place we find us ourselves in this morning, would you meet us? And as we sung earlier, we pray that our hope is in your word. Our hope is in your self-revelation, that you have not left us to ourselves and to our own patterns, to our own visions of what is good and right and true, but you have revealed yourself to us, and you've chosen to do so in your word. And we pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we look at this passage, would we see you, would we see Jesus, 
would we find hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, a lady named Sarah Heppola, who is an editor for Salon Magazine, the online magazine, writes about her alcohol addiction, and it's called My Relapse Years. Let me read this part because I think this is very insightful and it really gets us into this idea of what it means to fail and come before God as a failure. She says, one June morning, exactly two years ago, I woke up near dawn and understood that if I kept drinking, I would not get the things I wanted most. I knew that I could keep drinking for the rest of my life. And it's not that I would die exactly, it's that I would die inside. And this was an epiphany with legs. That night I talked to my mother about my drinking, and once you go public with your mom, there's no walking it back, which is probably why I did it. I wanted to firebomb my escape routes and secret hideaways. I wanted to narrow my options down to one path. Sometimes you have to fail 99 times to succeed once. You have to experience 99 false epiphanies in order to find the epiphany with legs. What I wish I'd known when I was drinking is that change requires failure. It requires screw-ups and a mouthful of grass and shins covered in bruises. And I'm sorry, but I don't know any other way around that. It also requires time and patience. Two things I don't particularly like because I was raised in the school of epiphany and instant gratification. But change is not a bolt of lightning that arrives with a zap. It's a bridge built brick by brick every day with sweat and humility and slips. It's hard work and slow work, but it can be thrilling to watch it take shape. I've been wanting to use this article for a number of years since I first read it, but I'm glad I waited because it fits perfectly into what we're trying to get at this morning. We're talking about confession which begins with honesty. It begins with honesty about our failures, and it also builds us into people of hope, not with a bolt of lightning, but with sweat and humility and slips. And it only works because on the other side of that confession, on the other side of the relationship is a God who is a tender Father, who is loving and compassionate beyond anything that we can or should expect. Anything that we could expect from other relationships or even from ourselves, that's what God wants to be in that relationship. And that's what actually invites honest confession. Because in God, you find that one person whom you can be totally honest without fear. And in that confession, repeated that hard work of bringing your burdens to God, bringing your sin to God, being honest with Him about who you are, There's a slow work that God does to bring you into the person that He wants you to be and that you ultimately want to be. He makes you into a person of hope and a person of joy. Look at the very first verse of our passage. The Apostle John has a a very specific goal in writing this section. He says, I write to you so that it will make our joy complete. And the Greek is not entirely clear because it actually says your joy to those who are receiving his writing. I write this to you. I invite you to make confession to the Lord so that your joy can be complete and whole. He's saying, friends, that there's a better way to be human. 
There's a better way to be in relationship with others. There's a better way to be in relationship with God, a way that leads to true joy, that leads us out of the cul-de-sac of self and invites us into this living, breathing, real relationship with God. And this better way begins sort of counterintuitively with the holiness of God. We have to first assess who He is and then assess ourselves in light of that. Last week we looked at the call to worship and we talked about how, how worship, how the call to worship shapes us into people who love a holy God, a righteous God, but who unexpectedly is also and equally a God of welcome and a God of compassion. And in order to become our truest, our our freest, our most joyful selves, we have to relate to Him as He truly is. And we have to be truthful about who we are in light of that, in contrast. In the call to worship and now in confession, we come to know God not as we think Him to be, Not as we imagine Him to be, not as we even necessarily expect Him to be or want Him to be, but how He reveals Himself. And this is true to any healthy relationship, right? You allow the other person to define themselves. You allow the other person to speak of themselves. You don't come to a relationship with someone in a box. You don't come and determine that they must fit into your presuppositions, but you allow the other person to be themselves. And what the Apostle John says here is that this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. That is, God has revealed himself in a certain way, and now we want you to respond to him as he is and not as you want, expect, or think him to be. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The Protestant reformer John Calvin, who just gets eviscerated in most history books, was actually a very sweet pastor, and he was a very insightful spiritual pilgrim. And he says, we never achieve a clear knowledge of ourselves unless we have first looked upon God's face and then descend from contemplating him to scrutinizing ourselves. For we always seem to ourselves righteous, upright, wise, and holy. This pride is innate in all of us unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. These are hard words because we live in a a society that has rejected the idea of judgment, interpreting it as judgmentalism. We don't like this concept of sin, of foulness, and yet we still have this haunting sense that something is wrong with us, that there's something amiss in my soul. And even though we may have abandoned the traditional ancient categories, we have this profound sense that we're being examined, we're being looked over, and that perhaps if someone really saw who we were, that they would reject us. And so we go about life with this deep feeling that we've got to hide our true selves. Or maybe that's just me. But secretly we feel, don't we, that we're not fully acceptable, that we have to prove to ourselves and other people that we're worthy, that we're lovable, 
that we're valuable, that we have something to offer to our world, all the while wrestling with profound feelings of guilt and shame. And these two poles that we can go from one to the other in a week, in a day, in an hour, almost instantaneously leads us to anxiety and worry and fear and almost a schizophrenic relationship with ourselves. Where do these, where do these feelings come from? Where do these senses come from? Well, I would submit to you that they're, that they're signposts, that this feeling of alienation from ourselves, from one another, even from our own desires to be moral, good people. They're road signs that God uses to draw you into a truer assessment of yourself and into a true assessment of who He is. That maybe, as Calvin suggests, that we have this innate sense of God, of His holiness, of His holy otherness, and that we understand that we're not Him and far from it. Because you see, even if we try to distance ourselves from Him, even if we distance ourselves from sort of a conventional, traditional sense of morality, even if we unattach or avoid attaching ourselves to any particular religious expression, we still have those aching moments where we know we've failed even our own commitments. We've given in, and we know that by no reasonable standard have we measured up to what is ethical, what is honorable. If you still have trouble believing me, do you, allow, do you allow your spouse to check in on your browser history? Do you allow your boss to follow you around at work to check in on you and how you're using your time and how you're using the company credit card? Do you find yourself talking about your accomplishments in front of those people whose opinion really matters to you? Do you spend a great deal of mental energy replaying the tapes of conversations that you had wishing you could have said something different? Don't you hate that? Perhaps you're here this morning looking for a way out of that, that cycle of self-justification and self-reproach, and you're in the right spot. But, but you, we, we first have, have to own up to an even deeper sense of personal corruption to break that cycle. Because if you're encountering God as He is, then your reference point, your vantage point changes. It's no longer how you're doing fulfilling your own commitments. It's no longer how you measure up to your neighbor or your spouse, but it's how you measure up in light of a perfect, holy, transcendent, omnipotent God who is perfection, who is whole. The God who John says in verse 5, He is light. He's not like light. Light is like Him. He is light, and in Him there is no darkness. And so Christian worship includes a segment where we confess this distance between who He is and who we are. We come and we confess all of the brokenness, what Dorothy Sayers calls the deep internal dislocation of the soul. That we bring that to God and say, here, would you fix me? Would you heal me? But you see, we resist that because, frankly, it's scary. It's really scary, and it takes great courage to 
walk in front of God. It takes bravery to own up to the destructive ways that we've gone about our lives and the way, the life, uh, the harm that it's caused us and the harm that it's caused others. It takes honesty. It takes courage to be honest. And that's what this passage is calling us to. Do you hear in verse 8? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We have to deal with that word sin, and we will do so in just a moment, because it's, it's an unattractive, dangerous word. It's a word that's fallen out of use in our society. But would you concede with me for a moment that what John is asking of us is to be honest, to have truth take up residence in us, to stop deceiving ourselves with that cycle of self-justification and self-reproach, but allow ourselves to be seen from the vantage point of God Himself. Coming to God in confession begins with being honest about our humanity, our dependency, our contingency, to be honest about our need of help. And it begins there, but John says that we have to be honest about our sin. And I realize that's a, that's a very difficult word. Walk out of these walls and talk about sin with anyone on the street, and you'll get some very strange looks because sin is that word that sort of rolls off the lips easily of religious fundamentalism whenever they're talking about someone else. But it's lost much of the relevance in our society. We don't respect this idea of sin any longer. And that's why we need prophets like John. That's why we need great films and great novels because they traffic in this idea of sin and redemption. Philip Roth, who's one of the great American novelists of our day, writes uh, in The Human Stain, the movie that uh, Anthony Hopkins starred in a number of years ago. But he writes about Coleman Silk, who has this incredible secret that threatens to destroy his career if anyone finds out. And it turns out that he's an African-American posing as a Jew. And Roth says, we leave a stain. We, humanity, we leave a trail. We leave our imprint. Impurity, cruelty, abuse, error, excrement. There's no other way to be here. It's in everyone. Indwelling, inherent, defining. The stain that is there before its mark. Without the sign, it is there. The stain is so intrinsic that it doesn't require a mark. The stain that precedes disobedience, that encompasses disobedience and perplexes all explanation and understanding. It's why all the cleansing is a joke, a barbaric joke at that. The fantasy of purity is appalling. It's insane. What is the quest to purify if not more impurity? The stain is inescapable. Now he uses different language, but he takes us right to the precipice of Christian confession. But did you notice it's a, it's a closed circle? How could we become clean when we ourselves are impure? More cleansing leads to more impurity and the cycle goes on and on. But he does assess the human condition in much the same way that Christianity does, that the confession, Christian confession does. But here's what's unique about Christian confession. It's that it's not a closed circle. It's that it brings us to a place of honesty, but it doesn't leave us there. 
It doesn't abandon us to hopeless nihilism. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, forgiveness doesn't come from within the system. From within you, forgiveness comes from the outside in. It comes from the top down. Forgiveness works its way inside you and out. If we only see God's light, if we only see His holiness, then we'll look at ourselves honestly and be crushed. But if we also understand that He's a God full of mercy and forgiveness, we can be moved to joy. And how do these two aspects of His character come together? That He is transcendently holy and yet near and personal and merciful? and compassionate. Verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. You see, the, the holiness of God without the sacrifice of Jesus will crush you. On the other hand, if you only see Christ's sacrifice without the understanding of the depth of your own sin, you'll never be moved and motivated and melted by joy. They have to go together. John says, if you have the blood of Christ, the light of God does not crush you, but you walk into that light. You begin to have courage to open yourselves up to the light. And in fact, the closer you get to Jesus, the more and more of your own sin that you see. And so you have to keep walking in the light that is revealed by God's transcendent holiness intersecting with God's transcendent grace and being given to you in the gift of His Son, Jesus. How do we walk in that light then? Because that's really John's interest here. He doesn't want us to play around with just concepts that exist up in the sky. He wants us to live by those things. He wants it to change the way that we go about life, the way that we think about ourselves. And as we come to confession, week after week, year after year, the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus begins to destroy the attractive power of sin because your incentive to walk into the light is not motivated by the threat that if you don't, then something bad will happen to you. Your incentive to walk into the light is that in the light, you meet a gracious, loving, forgiving, tender Father. Obedience is not due to the threat of His wrath, but the beauty of His love. But even more, even more because it's not just about you as an individual, but it's about what Jesus is and wants to do and will finally do in the whole world. Verse 2-1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. You see, when, when we do sin... The blood of Christ speaks our pardon to the Father. The very sacrifice that draws you out of sin is still relevant and still sufficient for you when you fall back into sin. It destroys the darkness and woos you back into the light. 
And if we get that, if we understand that we're in that, we get astounding joy because the one person in the universe whose opinion ultimately and eternally matters not only holds nothing against us but lavishes love upon us. And how do you know you get this? John tells us that we begin to to live into that light. We begin to live in response to Jesus. We begin to live like Jesus, as difficult as that sounds. And we get it because on one hand, we look at the world and we're far more pessimistic than anything we read in the news. We're far more distrustful of worldly solutions because you know that the problems as they are evidenced in their circumstances are far deeper than just solving the circumstances themselves, but they arise up out of something. The stain, you see, precedes disobedience. Your sin is a noun before it's a verb. You know that no one gets outside of their own sin problems by themselves. You know that no problem is solved just because you rearrange the circumstances. You're far more pessimistic than anything you read in the news, but at the same time, conversely, you're far more optimistic than anyone else because verse 2 in chapter 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, Jesus' solution, His redemptive work, is about far more than just your individual salvation. It's about far more than just getting you to God. But it's to bring His healing presence, His truth upon everything that is broken and sad about our world, to finally remove not just the circumstances of sin, but the very stain of sin once and for all. And so we see as we end, that the pathway to God that is laid out in confession, the pathway to God that's laid out in this table that we're about to come to is not in behavior modification. It's not in achievement. It's not an accomplishment. It's God. I want to see you as you are, and I want to see myself as I am. And as I stand before you, my main prayer is God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And God, have mercy upon my world with your grace and bring your healing presence to both. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would not be content to just deal in concepts, to deal with ideas, but that our theology would be lived theology. And that we'd also not be content to just deal with our own sin, but that we would be your hands and feet by your mercy. That we would align our hearts with you to bring your healing presence, to bear upon the hurts and the burdens next to us, as well as across the world. Let us be a church that does this as well, a church that walks in the light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.